Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 234, Side by Side. Board games best played sitting on the same side. Brought to you by our sponsor, Grand Gamers Guild. I'm Sean, and here with me, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, helping you make your game nights better. We're here again, Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Give or take a few minutes. You're always welcome to stop by and hang out with our other fans in the lobby, our chat room. So tonight we're tackling a question from longtime fan of the show about games that are best played when the players are sitting on the same side of the table. After that, we've got three reviews for you covering a wide range of games, starting with a chunky Feld in Marrakesh, moving to a quick playing card game with the Point Salad app, and finishing off with Cartographer's Heroes, a game I would kind of put in the middle of those two as far as game weight goes. We wrap up with thoughts on Holotype, The Chameleon, Dubious, and my first play of Kiss the Goblin. We'll find links for these games and more through our show notes, which you can find at tabletopbellhop.com slash episode 234. That's 234. Links there may also be affiliate links, and some of the games we'll be talking about tonight are review copies provided by publishers. All right, we're going to start by stopping by the suggestion box. Welcome to this week's suggestion box. Here we share Nort, 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 Nortworthy. I'm making up words. Here we share some noteworthy feedback we've gotten on our content. Up first, we've got Zerkodinsky, or Zerkodinsky, 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 9077, who commented on our topic of great sci-fi games, specifically on some of the joke entries I mentioned completely unscripted, to say, I wish Stargate SG-1 would be a great game. Also, I'd love to play the Firefly board game. These are my two favorite sci-fi IPs. I gotta say, I'm with you there. I wish there was a great Stargate SG-1 board game. Like, honestly, I, there should be. doesn't even have to be SG-1, actually. Just Stargate's fine. Like, I'm cool with just the movie or Stargate Atlantis or what a Beyond Worlds or whatever else. I love that series. That is actually one of the best sci-fi series I've ever watched. And Deanna and I have seen every episode of every part of it. So I do dig it. And I think the setting is fantastic. Now, one game I got to say that sounds like Stargate and I want it to be Stargate is the game Shadows of Brimstone. This is from Flying Frog Games. This is a miniature heavy dungeon crawling game where you have a group of heroes exploring an old mine shaft, except the different mine shafts lead to different worlds. So, yeah, I guess it's not that much Stargate when you think of it that way. Except I love the fact that for this game, you could buy different setting boxes and they be, can be all mashed together. So one night you could be exploring an alien ship and next you could be going back to ancient Egypt. See, Stargate. Now, what I will call out, though, is there have been a few different Stargate RPGs. And I've got to say, I don't know if there's a better setting for a sci-fi RPG, especially as a GM, right? If you want to do the everything resets to square one and everyone who shows up that night gets to play. You go on a mission to another world, you finish it, you come back and it's, it's almost a West marches style campaign. I would love to run that. I think it's a fantastic setting for that. Plus you get to mix in everything, right? You can have supers, you can have fantasy, you can have sci-fi as each world's different. Now the version I know of the SG one role-playing game is from AEG Alderic entertainment group back then before they were called AEG and it was based on their Spycraft system, which is a version of D20 Modern. I haven't actually played that one, but I know the basics of it. I own their Babylon 5 game, which is similar. Now, I know there's a newer version that was actually kickstarted, I think in 2021, by a company called Wyvern Gaming. Gaming that's W-Y-V-E-R-N Gaming. It may be worth checking out. I haven't touched it myself. I did go to their website. 
um, just to confirm it's still available and you can pre-order the game there and get the demo rules or something like that. Now, as for Firefly, great game. Uh, well worth picking up. There's a new 10th anniversary edition that I guess it looks fantastic, though the price point, yeah, it's up there, but you get everything that was ever published and a nice shiny box with some upgrades and stuff like that. But I will say the game is very enjoyable. Yeah, I, I got to say, you're, you're describing all these uh, Stargate S, uh, SG-1 RPGs, and I'm thinking, why don't you just play Game Park? Yeah, Theme Park. <laughs> yeah, it would work for Stargate. There, You could do it. Plus, you know, it'd be a great setting for GURPS. I, I realize we're going old school when I'm calling out GURPS, <laughs> but like, you want to be able to have that, you know, you go on one planet and fight dinosaurs, and then you go on the next planet and fight sci-fi mecha. There, isn't, there aren't many games systems that handle that that well. Congratulations. Probably one of the few times we'll ever mention GURPS on this show. Yeah, true. <laughs> now, up next is something we get now and then, but not often, a matching or counter review from a fan. In this case, it's Mike's Z, who shared their thoughts on Astra. They say, love this game. It draws attention anytime I get it out. It starts very casually at first, but by the end, all players are engaged and trying to angle out the constellation they need. Great use of area majority and set collection, pretty art and components, seats up to five. Overall, a solid B. Well, I got to say, Mike, uh, good job getting that down to, you know, less than a minute compared to our our usual reviews. I, I dig the ending of these. This is awesome. I actually like it when I get like, a, I, I don't know, I want to call it a counter review, but honestly, we're agreeing with Mike here for the most part. I just like the fact that they're reinforcing parts we made, like the fact that Astra catches people's attention. Um, the only thing that Mike needed to throw in there was how much he liked the dry erase boards, and we would have been completely on the same page. So I got to say, anyone else out there that wants to comment on one of our reviews with your own thoughts on a game, we appreciate it. Keep them coming. All right. Well, finally, we've got a comment on our Monstrosity Robots expansion review from the designer of Monstrosity himself, Eric Slauson. Eric writes, it's a rite of passage as a designer to release an expansion that many say improves the base game so much you can't go back. So glad you're enjoying some assembly required. As for the Cute Creatures pack, that one released first, I believe, so I don't think we had the idea to put expansions in the box yet. There's a variant in the back of the rulebook for the base game. Now, we do have more variants releasing soon, though, so keep an eye out. Thanks for your review and support. So, as we both noted before, it's always awesome when a designer actually takes the time to watch, read our content, and even better, when they comment on it. That is fantastic. Thank you, Eric. So the big news here, though, that I want to make sure people didn't miss is the news. There are more variants coming soon for Monstrosity, uh, which I also assume must mean more expansions coming. And I got to say, I am happy about this. Well, that's it for tonight. We appreciate every reply, quote, share and comment we get. Now, have we mentioned the Gamma Expo? So Dan and I leave for Kentucky in three days. And wow, has I, our itinerary filled in. Um... We've got meetings planned with all kinds of publishers, uh, Wise Wizard Games, Paverson Games, CGE, Lucky Duck, Floodgate, and more. With plans to attend media events from The Op, Mantic Games, Steve Jackson, Amigo, Allplay, WizKids, Goodman Games, and a ton more. I cannot believe how full our schedule is now. Now, Mo, D and Mo are going to be gone all week, so you won't be seeing us here live on Twitch next week, nor should you expect a podcast episode to drop on March 12th. Yeah, by the time this episode, the one we're recording here on Wednesday night, goes live on Tuesday morning, uh, we'll be at Gamma. We'll be, we'll be actually be part of the full, the first day of uh, presentations and panels. It's what they're calling Designer Day, I think, on that day. No, Monday's Designer Day. Tuesday is just like all kinds of panels and presentations and stuff like that. So be sure to watch my social media feeds, as I say, multiple times every episode, Tabletop Bellhop, one word, for up-to-date Gamma Expo info. 
We're here to answer your gaming and game night questions. So if you got a question for us, you can send that to questions at tabletopbellhop.com through email. You can head to our website, click on Ask the Bellhop, or hit me up on social media where I can be found everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Well, tonight's question comes from longtime fan of the show, Red Meeple Ryan, who asks, what games do you think are better played with players on the same side of the table? I gotta say, this is a fascinating question to me, because when I think of people sitting down to play a game, the image in my head is a small card table, a square table with four players, each sitting on a different side of that table, or possibly a bigger table, like at many of our local public play events, where you end up with four players, two on each side. I don't, in my head, ever peep, picture people at a board game night sitting on the same side of the table. And I got to say, it's it's fascinating when you start thinking about it on how much sense that makes with the right games. Well, and interestingly, I when I grew up, my family kitchen table, which was where we would usually end up gaming, was a round table. And we all sat right. opposite each other. Uh, even the dining room table, uh, unless you extended it for like full party size, was more round than not. Um, mm-hmm. And so you end up with this not having a side, really, I think. And, and maybe this is a, maybe that's a seventies thing and maybe more, more tables. I mean, card tables have always been square, but dining t- tables were often very round uh, for that family style of eating. And I think that may be part of where that oppositional seating came from. Yeah, that's possible. It, it, it definitely, it, I think how you sit at the dinner table does have an impact on how people sit at a table when they come down. But like, even with my massive gaming table in my game room, which is a huge four by eight table, which doesn't sound that big till you see it compared to most people's tables, we tend to sit at one end. And if we're only three players, it's still one person each side, even though you could probably fit three people just on the end. And then when we get to higher player count, we tend to put two people on each side and then one person at the end when we're playing five player games. It's not, I don't think we've ever sat down at my table and used up the eight foot long side with, say, six people sitting on that side in the game between us. Well, and I think part of it is also uh, efficient use of space. If you're all lined up in one in one side, you, you can't really reach that far side of the table easily. So it sort of goes unused. Whereas if you are wrapped all the way around, you're more maximizing the use of the table in that particular thing. Yeah. So honestly, having the extra table space is definitely something that can be used for some games, including one we're going to review later tonight. Indeed. And and while many of us may have learned the skill of reading cards and boards upside down, it can often be better if we don't have to employ that skill, which yeah. goes a long way for this uh, topic. Yeah, I always feel bad because I'm, I'm usually the game teacher, but including that, I'm also the tabletop bellhop, right? I'm, I'm here to do this podcast and stuff. And part of that is written reviews and my social media accounts. I want to take pictures. So I always feel bad when I'm teaching a game. I know when the inexperienced players are sitting on the opposite side and I'm like, I'm sorry, I want to be able to take pictures. So I want everyone facing me because that's, that's another thing when you're sharing pictures of games, who wants to see the game upside down? And I often I'm like, okay, you know, I, I feel bad. Like whoever's, you know, new to the game, sit on the sides at least. And the most experienced players sit at the end. Yeah. And it's interesting because this is actually one thing I never really consider. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, especially because I'm a lover of card games where playing on the same side is generally discouraged just due to the ease of even accidentally glancing at another person's hands. I mean, imagine playing a game of poker all lined up on the same side. It's just not going to happen. You know, know, even a casino table, when you are lined up on the same side, it's curved, right? Specifically to to avoid that. Um, It's when you get into those tableau builders and other open information games or co-ops 
that yeah. you can really start getting it around needing to sit opposite each other for privacy and for, uh, reasons. Yeah, and I get it. It's it, it's not intuitive to, to not to to not sit across from each other. But I gotta say, any game you played where someone on the opposite side of the table is like, I can't read those. Just pass me the cards. You're probably better playing from one side. Absolutely. So one solution that I have and, and my family uses is at a longer table. Uh, it's two on either side, and you push that main board or the the row of the market row of cards down the table. So everyone has to turn their head, but no one's looking mm. at it upside down. So it, it's it's all sort of oriented 90 degrees to every player in order yeah. to see. Uh, but that's only if you've got a long enough table to be able to do that and not have the main boards in the middle. Oh, totally fair. So I think at this point, we're going to get into a list of games. This is what Ryan wanted, a list of games and why they're better played on the same side of the table. And the first game I ever saw this in, this is actually kind of the, the inspiration for our entire topic tonight. It was during our review of Funfair that Ryan asked this question. This game recommended doing this. Like when you bought the game and you read the instructions, it came with a two-player, two-sided board, not a two-player board, a two-sided board. Now, I have a ton of games. I have multiple-sided boards. Usually, it's for player count. Well, this was for seating orientation. I have never seen a game where the board changed based on seating orientation. And there's a side of the board from when you sit opposite each other, and there's a side of the board from when you all sit on the same side. And I'm like, that's really cool. I actually really like that. And this made sense for this game because there's a lot of face-up cards on that center board. There's a market you can buy from, but there's also a face-up event deck. And then there's also, um, what are they? The... Um, do bad things to other players' cards. Oh, sorry, this is Funfair. Funfair doesn't have that anyway. <laughs> Never mind. Getting it confused with another game. But there's a bunch of, like, there's the, the market deck, and there's other cards that are face-up that all matter to all the players. And while everyone's building their own tableau, and honestly, it's a lot easier to look to your left and right to see what other players are building than it is to look across the table as well. So I've got to say, I was blown away. I was like, wow, this makes sense. Like, more games should do this. Why don't we see this more often? So again, that was Funfair. And mentioned in the chat room is one that I know we don't have on this list tonight. Apparently, Arc Nova has that same feature built into it. Oh, with the board flips? Yeah. Okay, cool. So next up, we have Unfair, actually published before Funfair, though we did come to it second. Now, it also features that two-sided board uh, function, again, to allow for that, you know, convenient play where everyone's all facing together. Everyone's able to read everything easily and a quick glance to the sides. Do you know what's going on in the, in the game? Yeah, and I would say it's actually even better in Funfair because, again, there's those those negative, those, the negative events, the cards you can grab, intrigue cards, I think they might be called. Sorry, it's been too long since so I played. we got to play it again. It's buried, though. I know it is. We managed, we managed to find, oh, no, Unfair is unburied. Funfair is buried. But, yeah, I'd say the nasty cards you can play against each other that make the game unfair, having that up so everyone can read them is really useful. All right, the next one is, I'm going to call it a specific game, but honestly, this applies to a lot of games, and that is Ticket to Ride. Any version of Ticket to Ride, except maybe New York or any of the little tiny ones, because no matter how well you know the geography of the board you are playing, it is way easier to figure out where your tickets go to and what connects where if your map is face up. And especially in Ticket to Ride, when you play with people who play cutthroat and not friendly, which honestly is the only way I'll enjoy the game. People want to, Ticket to Ride, I like if people are cutting each other off, is you don't want to be giving away which route you're looking at. So standing up and leaning over the board and looking at that big, long route, as everyone going, oh, you must have a ticket from there, right? You don't want that. Having everyone on the same side of the board means the map 
and the cards match. So you hold up your card, you hold up the mat, you look, and there's a picture, and you can cross-reference the two. And honestly, this applies to most games with maps. And to be fair, uh, you mentioned the small ones might not. I do remember in New York wanting to sit 90 degrees to each other, not okay. across from the table because of that exact same problem. So even the small ones, until you've memorized the map, which is easier mm-hmm. because they're small, you still want to have a, a better orientation. So next up, I've got Starship Captains, one we just reviewed recently, uh, which just has a lot of different information. It's got a market. It's got the main board. It's got the faction boards. There's so much information that if you're sitting all around the table, you're really straining to see, you know, where the market board is and what orientation it's in and, you know, where, who's, who's in what position on all the different faction tracks and mm-hmm. how many steps do you need to go to get to the next bonus and things like that. Whereas if you're all sitting across the, t- uh, across or next to each other, it's yeah. all facing you and you can, or you can organize the table in a way that everyone can see everything better. It's something we haven't done, but really should. Uh, I think yeah. using your basement table, that depth that we were talking about earlier that could be a problem would actually be a benefit for Starship Captains. Oh, totally agree. Next, I have Orléans, um, specifically, though, with the Trade and Intrigue expansion. And this is basically the same idea as Ticket to Ride, but honestly, I find it worse than Orléans. And that is to find the cities on the map. And the reason for that is because, as far as I can tell, when they designed the game, the name of the cities didn't matter. They're called whatever. All you care is if you built a building there and if someone's grabbed the resource that's on the route between them, right? But once you throw in the intrigue expansion, specific trade and intrigue expansion, specifically the orders part of that expansion, where you're delivering goods to the different cities, trying to find those cities is painful. And I got to say, it's even painful trying to looking at the board from the right way. It's just even worse turned upside down. This was so bad that Deanna refuses to use that expansion when playing unless she's the one that's sitting right in front of the board and even then she's going to have difficulty yeah i actually love that particular expansion but it is really difficult to read that uh i i found uh you know you almost need to take a picture of the board and you know use your phone to zoom in and 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 as you're going along yeah it's another one where you don't want to give away what you're looking at too exactly next up we've got dominion but honestly any deck builder with a static market there's a lot of info on those cards, and unless you happen to have memorized all of them, which admittedly is for Dominion is possible, but for a lot of other games, uh, DC Deck Builder, for instance, you probably haven't memorized the hundreds of different cards from all the different expansions and what they do. It's best if you can actually read them, and you don't want to be, you know, taking all the time to reach across the table and turn it towards you, and then wait, you know, someone else is going to turn it towards them. Uh it is why somebody, so many people will use a Lazy Susan if it's available. Yep. Uh, and then Thunderstone is even worse as there's a big market board and a row of monsters you have to fight. So the one thing you do have to watch with these deck builders is the card game problem, right? You don't really want to tip your hand to the other players. Though in most deck builders, not that big a deal. But if you're playing cooperative, that right out the window, you may as well have your cards face up. So if you're doing a cooperative deck builder, even more so. Uh, Next up, I've got Robo Rally um, and honestly, most program movement games. It in in particular to I want to call it mechs versus minions as one I remember having difficulty with because it's hard enough to try to orient your cards and your thinking and your gameplay towards the way your robot or piece or whatever game it is, is facing. And it's even harder if you have to orient yourself to the board as well. 
that game is what we we always call it the robot dance when people are sitting there holding their cards and twisting and trying to figure out where they're going by making some people sit at different angles to the board just makes it harder for everyone which is not what the game's supposed to be about it's often hard enough just to figure out where you want things to go um quad heroes is another example of a game that has that problem that's not quite programmed movement but has an aspect to it where it's just a lot easier if everyone's looking at the board from the same perspective. Absolutely. Next up, we've got Arnak, Lost Ruins of Arnak. Now, while being right side up helps with the market, as we talked about in the uh, earlier portion about Dominion, and it can help with exploring, one of the big places this helps is the Temple Track. But yeah. also, just reaching-wise, this game is oriented. It's a long, tall board. Uh, it's not, you know, a wide or even square board. It, it, it the, the game tends to sort of stretch out, uh, away from the, the base of the, of how it's set up. So being at least 90 degrees to each other, if not next to each other can really help everyone mm -hmm. sort of reach and see what's going on and just manage the game so much better. So that's a game I, I feel they failed in designing one part of that. They should have put the market track at the bottom of the board. So it's closer to the players. As, especially if you're sitting on one side. At least when you're, you're sitting opposite, it's closer to half the players, but it's upside down for them. Next, I have the Pathfinder Adventure card game. Now, the reason for this is that the dungeon in that game, or your adventure, or your wilderness, whatever, I'm going to use the term dungeon because it's role-playing and it's, it's fantasy, is represented by rows, multiple rows of stacks of cards. And on your turn, you're going to pick which stack to go to and to be able to do decide that, you need to read all the top cards in each stack to decide where to go. Now, interestingly, Paizo's official play map for this game has everything splayed out in a circle. So it looks kind of like a big Warhammer Chaos symbol, and you're supposed to put a deck at each. And that was done to kind of mitigate it so that no matter where you're sitting, you have at least one stack pointing towards you. But honestly, it's just way better if you're sitting on the same side and the decks are facing everyone the right, right way. Um, I've only ever played this one two-player, and like, it's worse. It's bad sitting opposite each other. This is one of the games, even without that game telling me to sit on the same side, I was like, well, yeah, sit on the same side so we can both see the dungeon deck. And it's cooperative, so you don't have to worry at all about someone else seeing the cards in your hands. Similarly to Pathfinder, Offender, Aventuria, which we haven't talked about in a little while, but similar to yeah. Pathfinder, but it's that row of minion and villain and encounter cards and everything. Everyone needs to be able to see what's up what's coming, what their special triggers are in order mm -hmm. to plan their actions. It's very um, telling that in the tabletop simulator version, they have arranged it so that all four players are facing and sitting the, on the yeah. same side of the table facing that uh, encounter area. That's a good call. I didn't even think of for research for this episode. I should have brought up, looked at tabletop simulator versions of games and how many do that, including the next one on our list, which is Space Base which we don't, we usually play around the table because we like to play it with high player counts. We've had this one up to eight players, um, but it can really benefit from a shared orientation for the cards, um, both because of being able to see what cards are in the market and what colony cards are available, but also that quick glance to your left and right. I guess once you get up to the full, what is it, 11 players the game plays, I think, with all the expansions, <laughs> it'd be a bit much to see what's going on. But if you're playing with a lower player count, it's a lot easier to see what cards and what cards, what numbers players have cards on if it's right next to you as opposed to across a table. Absolutely. Well, now we're going to get into some honorable mentions. All right. Up first, I want to I want to honorable mention block and key, but not because you sit on the same side. But because it's one of the few games I own 
that specifically requires people to sit in different configurations based on the player count. Now, this isn't what Ryan asked for, but I, I but it's just neat because it expects seating arrangements different from what you expect. In particular, if you are playing two player, you do not sit opposite each other. You have to be not next to kitty corner to each other. Like you have to be on 90 degrees from each other. And if you're playing three players, there's going to be one side open and you can't play this game on the same side. Like the game only actually works because it's your perspective of the board that scores. And I'm um, not yet played in the chat called out Sakatsu. And I think that's the exact same thing. It's you play from your perspective of the board. So it's the same kind of thing as block and key. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other one I have is Marrakesh, because I honestly think it'd be fantastic if you were all on the same side of the table. But I don't see how you're going to fit it on anyone's table by sitting that way, because the game is just so dang big. Now, maybe the Essentials version is like that, but like there is just so much going on. There's a massive main board, like one of the biggest boards I, I own for any board game. That it has all kinds of things. There's scroll tiles you can buy in three different types split over 15 piles, I think. And then there's a market you can buy a thing from that's split into like seven different piles. And then there's the the gates that go up into the other sale area. And, and like the gates, we literally just pile up. There's not even a good place to put them. And then you get this massive board and then everyone's got a player board that's larger than some games I own's main board. And you somehow have to fit that. And it would be way easier to be able to see the board if it was just face up in front of everyone. But where are you going to put it? Like, like you almost want the board to be up on a screen somewhere and track it digitally because it's so dang big. Although the other issue is if you're all playing on the same side, you definitely need better or bigger screens to hide the Keshis. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, your Keshis. So, so anyway, it's an honorable mention anyway, but I just... I, I, th that game for that is the, the pass me that game. Like how many times when we play that, can you pass me that? Can you, can you show me that temple tile? Can you pass me what, what's that one do? Uh, what's over there? How many of these? Okay. How far up am I on that track? What are my rewards? Like it, it's, it's the, the, the person who, who has the best vision is going to be the busiest player in that game. Uh, interestingly, in the chat room, someone just uh, called out Everdell is one that clearly has three main sides because of the tree. And yet in my research, I saw Everdell coming up numerous times as one that people do play side by side. Now, I've never played Everdell, so I, I had no opinion on it. But uh, I, a number of people in the threads I was seeing do play Everdell side by side. So, oh. interesting. See, I, always, I saw the tree and I was like, doesn't that get in the way? That's all I've ever thought about Everdell. Yeah, we should try Everdell. Uh, kitty corner, catty corner. Uh, that's the 90 degree, uh, 90 degree thing. I've heard catty corner. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, have we got anything else to share? Uh, what, the White Castle is one that people were mentioning uh, would be good front, uh, side by side. Um, not sure what that is. Uh, where is it here? The oh, White no, Castle. Hugely the popular. That's, that's new hotness game. Right. Ah, okay. But yeah, big main board and lots of things similar similar to uh, things like Marrakesh where that big, yep. uh, big main Plus, board. Plus, as far as I know, nothing you have to hide from the other players. All right, well, there you have a number of games that we think play better when the players are on the same side of the table and definitely play better if the players aren't sitting completely opposite each other. So we've already uh, called out a couple of things from the lobby so far, but I did see quite a bit in there. Is there anything that they shared that I had missed? What games would they add to our list of games best played on the same side of the table? Mm, we have Arc Nova. No. So yeah, we called out Arc Nova for actually being specifically designed for players to be on the same side. 
which is pretty cool. Has that. I have not played Arc Nova. Uh, um, code names. Well, yeah, code names. See, I, the problem, I didn't even think of code names because I play code names du- duet. And code names duet, you do not want. Right. Code names duet does not work if you're on the same side. That would ruin the game. But yes, the original code names, um, it's weird because you need the, the people who give the clues on one side of the table and everyone else on the other side of the table. But it definitely helps that everyone's looking at the words in the same orientation. And I know people put the words like there's the big version of the word and then there's this weird little small scrolly version. And they're hard to read. Like, like, why didn't you just mirror the two and make it just as clear on both sides? I've always been confused by that design choice by CGE. That, that there's the one side of the cards is harder to read than the other. Another game, and, and this is this actually could be a completely uh, distinct topic, but games where one player, almost like a DM or GM, needs to sit opposite the other players. Yep. Because uh, another game that I thought of when, when you were talking about program movement was Jaws. Where you want the shark sitting on one yeah. side, but everyone else it probably it probably benefits to sit near each other, facing the board uh, from a, a you know, unified orientation like that. Yeah, it's probably true of every one versus many game. We could we could do a list of best one versus many games. <laughs> probably good. I don't own a lot. I, it is not my favorite style of game. So I, like I, everyone's probably heard us recommend every game I would put on that list in different other recommendation episodes. Fair enough. Uh, right, furnace well. might work. I see that called out. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it, w- it would depend because of how big your tableau grows that you might get in the way of other players. Um, what was one? The uh, King Domino was one I heard mentioned uh, uh, today, not in our chat room right now, but I saw I saw listed elsewhere that people play side by side. I don't see why mm-hmm. on that one. I don't see anything that makes it better side by side. Not that I can think of any reason because you're drafting card. Yeah, I don't see any because all that matters is your own personal board. Right. Like, like Deanna mentioned, Azul is a great game that you can play side by side, which is fantastic for playing on a small table or at a bar. But like, there's no advantage to playing that way, except you take up less room. Where I was looking for games that actually like play better, you can see it better. Azul, it doesn't really matter what angle you can see the market from, but it's great to be able to play in that small space. Fair enough. To me, that was a different list. I'm like, okay, what are games that, you know, you can play on the same side versus games that are best played on the same side? All right. Well, now that we've heard from the lobby and you've heard our list of games best played with players on the same side of the table, it's time for you to let us know what we missed. You can do that by posting a comment wherever you're watching or listening to this, sending an email to mo at tabletopbellhop.com or hitting us up on social media where I can be found as tabletopbellhop, one word. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to tip your bellhop by heading over to patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop. And now a word from our sponsor, Grand Gamers Guild. Easter is here and you're excited about your volunteer opportunity at the community center. But where are the other workers and why have none of the eggs been hidden? To race against the clock as you try to find the perfect hiding spot for each egg and unravel the mystery of your colleague's disappearance. The Easter Escapade is the latest, the greatest, well, I don't know about greatest yet, but one of the newest, the eighth game in the Holiday Hijinks line of games. An escape room game in just 18 cards. If you're looking for the perfect gift for your Easter basket, look no further. The Easter Escapade is family-friendly and plays in about an hour. Now, personally, I can't wait to check this one out because my family has really been enjoying the Holiday Hijinks games. And at this point, we're done. We played them all. We need new ones. I am really looking forward uh, to getting a chance to check this one out at the Game Expo this weekend and hooking up with Mark, our sponsor. This one, uh, there, there is another coming after this. I have insider info 
Easter Escapade is one of two new holiday hijinks comings this year. Well, pick up a copy or download the print and play at grandgamersguild.com, where you can use our code BELLHOP, B-E-L-L-H-O-P, to save 10%. Fall down the cube tower and join us for a review of Marrakesh, a big, beautiful point salad from Steffenfeld and Queen Games, who we have to thank for providing us with a review copy. Now, Marrakesh is part of Queen's new city series, relatively new city series, which features a number of Feld's games. This is actually game number four in the series and was the first game in that series that is all new. It's not a retheme or update of one of Feld's older games. This is brand new Feldness. Now, there are currently three versions of this game out there. The copy we have is the Big Box Classic Edition. There is also a deluxe edition, which features aesthetic upgrades like different shaped playing pieces, stickers, and wooden resources. In addition, there's a newer Essential Edition, which is the same game, but in a much smaller box, with redesigned player boards, fewer components, and a lower price point to match. Now, the important thing to note here is that all these versions, all three versions of Marrakesh, are the same game. They play identically. They each play two to four players, best with three, with games taking over two hours on average. The physical weight of the Essential Edition may be way lower than than the others, but the game weight is still the same on the medium-heavy side of things. Now, Queen and the Board Game Geek community agree that this game is best for gamers 14+, and that seems about right to us, too, though we're sure some younger kids could dig it, especially if they're already used to Feld's style of games. While a lot is going on in Marrakesh, the actual game mechanics aren't overly complicated. So in Marrakesh, players are competing to be the most influential family in the city through the use of assistance and resources represented by wooden cylinders called Keshis. The game is played over only three seasons, each of which has four rounds. Each round, players secretly select three actions, each represented by a different colored Keshi. The strength of each action is based on how many Keshis the player has already collected, and those Keshis are collected from one of Feld's famous cube towers. So you never know exactly what you'll get. In a typical Steffenfeld fashion, each of these different actions will give you points for doing different things. In Marrakesh, you will explore the desert, harvest figs, go fishing, progress up mosque and palace tracks, use scholars to draft scrolls, and more. Now check out our Marrakesh unboxing video on YouTube to see the ridiculous amount of stuff you get in this box. It is a ton of wood, cardboard, dual-layer boards, and more. The component quality in Marrakesh is good to excellent. The wooden components are great. The fact that caches are octagonal means they won't roll away, which is a nice bonus. Dual layer boards are great for holding everything and so far haven't worked. The amount of cardboard really is staggering and the rulebook is fantastic. There is a ton going on here, but the rulebook is actually broken up and color coded by section, which makes each action type um, easy to find and makes the book surprisingly good for reference. You know, some things that could be improved are the rather tiny, easy-to-lose gate tokens, yeah. uh, which in the deluxe version are actual wooden gates, but not in uh, the big box or essential. Yeah. And then the tiny player screens with their almost useless iconography. Uh, to be honest, iconography overall could be a little bit better. Now, once you've played four or five times, you may start recognizing everything, but until then... Keep that reference book handy. Yeah, and that's a good thing to call out. The the reference book or appendix book that's almost as thick as the rule book 
is great because it explains every tile, every reward spot, every icon, every scroll, every trade transaction, end game scoring, everything is all in there in detail. And you're going to use that book a lot. Now, one thing that needs to be called out is how much room all of this stuff takes up on the table. This is one of the biggest table hogs we've ever seen. We could barely fit three of us at Moe's Dining Room Table, which can seat six at a meal, but has no chance of fitting four players for this game. Yeah, even once we got access to my game room again, it was rough getting the game to fit in a four by six area because the main board with a player board at each end doesn't fit. It's more than four feet wide. And we had to put our player boards beside the main board even to be able to fit. Just put it this way. The fact they released a smaller essential edition does not surprise me at all. I think it was a good decision. Okay, so pretty much every review, we warn you that we're only giving you a high-level overview of play. But that is true more than ever tonight. Marrakesh has a lot going on. And there's no way we can cover the entire game in detail tonight. So setup in Marrakesh takes a bit and involves a lot of sorting of things and placing things into bags and pulling them out and randomizing things and putting stuff on the main boards and the individual player boards. But all you really need to know to know if the game's for you is to, the, to for a gist of what's going on, is that everyone is going to start with 12 cashies behind their screen, one in each color, and they're going to have three assistants who are their workers. Marrakesh is played over three seasons with four rounds each. Each round has four phases. The first round has players select cashies and deploy assistants. Simultaneously, everyone selects three cashies from behind their screen, representing that the actions that they would like to do this turn. Once everyone has picked, they are revealed, and players place one assistant on the appropriate action spot on their player board for each action. Note that red water vendor cashies are wild and allow you to place that assistant anywhere. The next phase has players claim cashies and deploying them. All of the cashies chosen this round by all the players are gathered and thrown into the cube tower. The ones that come out are sorted, and then players are going to draft them by color, taking at most two at a time. Each cashie drafted is placed onto the player's player board. Now, some cashies, the pink entertainers, the brown caravans, and the green date pickers, do give a bonus one place, so don't miss that. The next phase is the bulk of the game, and has players using their assistants. Each player will activate all three of their assistants before... Play moves on to the next player. I, I point this out because we got it wrong the first couple of games. Yep. Uh, when activating an assistant, you can either do that region's action or you can collect one Keshi of the appropriate color. The strength of the various actions is based on how many Keshis the player has already collected in that region or color. Okay, so green date picker Keshis let you collect dates, one for each Keshi you have. Blue fish cashies move your fishermen up a river track, which give you increasingly better end-of-round bonuses, as well as the potential for end-of-season rewards. Purple, yellow, and orange cashies represent goods, carpets, lamps, and spices that can be traded at the souk for resources or luxury goods. Pink entertainers activate the main square and have players rotate their audience disc by one spot, then pick one reward where they already have a cashie. They get the reward shown multiplied by the number of people watching shown on the disc. Now, black cleric keshis and white noble keshis go to the mosque and palace, respectively, and each moves the player's markers up on the respective tracks. After cross- crossing certain threshold lines on these tracks, players earned money and other bonuses. Gray scholar keshis go to the madrasa where they craft scrolls. 
Here, Keshis are more of a currency that can be spent to acquire powerful rule-breaking abilities at the cost of dates. Beige guards are played to the Medina. Here, players will buy gates for money, which they will pair with a guard. Each gate gives a bonus Keshi in its color, and they can earn or cost the player points. Gates which are built matching the color of the area they protect earn bonus points. Brown caravans are used to explore the Sahara and unlock endgame scoring opportunities. At the end of the game, you're going to score your three best oasis. The red water vendor Keshis can be placed at any of the other areas we just described. When you activate an area with a water vendor, you earn one water in addition to the Keshi or action taken. Now, at the end of each round, players get a bonus based on where their fishermen are located. At the end of each season, players also need to provide for their people. At the start of the game, each player gets three provision tiles. They flip one of these up per round, and each round they have to fulfill the requirements of all of the face-up tiles, or else lose a significant number of points and possibly, more importantly, all of their resources. At the end of each season, final river rewards are handed out. At the start of each season, the turn order shifts, and each player gets a fresh set of 12 different Keshis to put behind their screens. After the final season, players are awarded bonus points for each completely filled section on their player board, which requires eight Keshis and one water vendor. They get points for their best three oasises, as mentioned, and a minor amount of points for any leftover resources. Player with the most points wins. They're simple, right? Basically just 12 terms of putting some stuff on a board, right? Easy. Oh, yeah. Now, the big thing with Marrakesh is that while that may sound extremely overwhelming... And trust me, it intimidated it for me at first. The, the game stayed on my shelf of shame a little longer than it should have because I was intimidated by this. There are only actually nine possible actions in the game, and most of those are very simple. One of the things that makes this game so very intimidating is the graphic design. There is a lot of color here, and while it makes sense and helps gameplay to someone familiar, it's incredibly overwhelming to try and figure out what it all means and a bit of sensory overload on initial setup. Now, to keep things simple going forward, I'm going to talk about things by Keshi color. So an example of the action simplicity here. The blue, black, and white Keshis have you move up on tracks. That's it. You just, the number of Keshis, you move up that many spots. Green Keshis give you food. Super simple. Number of Keshis, you take that much food. The marking actions are also easy, as your orange, yellow, and purple Keshis just represent goods to be traded in. Pink isn't too bad either. Turn the disc on your board and get a reward. The other three that are a little harder and do trip people up. And again, they aren't hard taken on their own. Each individual action is thematic and graphically well shown. Blue is fishing. White and black are the white and black stairways. Uh, it's, it's pretty obvious individually. Yep. Now that said, there are, of course, a lot of moving parts here and lots of little tiny rules that are easy to miss. Our first three games, we had the turn order completely wrong. For whatever reason, I had it stuck in my head that everyone would take one action with one assistant, then move to the next player. And then they would take an action with an assistant and then move to the next player instead of completing all three assistant actions at once in the order you choose. And that surprisingly changes the game quite a bit. And then even after four plays, we missed a rule where you could spend one dinar, the, the coins in the game, to rotate the scrolls before pur purchasing them when taking a great cashy action. Though to be fair, the rotating scrolls action is rather high-level action that requires you to know the scrolls and be willing to gamble, which requires yeah. a certain level of component knowledge. To be honest, it's probably not an action that I can even imagine myself ta taking without playing this game many more times, while D, I suspect, might have actually used it in our last game. 
Yeah, I remember one point in the last game where everything that was up on the worst scrolls was like no one wanted them. So I could even see doing it even not knowing what's there. Just what's there is no use to me and I got to take something. So may as well look what else there is. Now, one of the reasons I called out that I, I've been calling the Keshis by color is I wanted to point out that the, the, the theme here really doesn't matter all that much. Um, this is typical of Steffenfeld's games and Marrakesh is no exception. It fil- fits that pasted on theme thing that Feld's kind of known for. So far, no one I played with has said, you know, pass me a date picker or I'm going to take a caravan action. It's always give me a green Keshi, please, or I'm moving in the desert or pass me a purple and two yellows. There's also not really a lot of thematic tie in anywhere else either, though. I would say the lack of theme isn't a problem. It doesn't get in the way. It doesn't bother me. There's nothing wrong. It doesn't cause any problems. But similar to Sean's thoughts on Lords of Waterdeep, you're just calling them colored keshis and cubes and points. Now, that said, you could talk about date pickers and water vendors. It's not that the theme isn't there and isn't actually interesting. Now, I can't comment on accurate, but it is an interesting look at a historical experience in the Imperial Moroccan city. Now, one of the biggest problems we have with Marrakesh is that a big problem, how dang big the game is. It takes up a lot of room and has a ton of little tiny pieces. This size means you need a big table. And the amount of small, tiny bits here has me not wanting to bring the game out public play events because it'd be really easy to lose some of these small pieces. And they don't give you any extras here. There's no spare catchies. There's no spare gates. Well, I do dig the components in the game, and I got to admit, I like the nice big player board and the fact you're going to put multiple cashies on it, and I love the way it looks. I can totally see the appeal of the Essential Edition with its tracks versus individual spots. In fact, we've already misplaced a non-essential but frustrating component of the cube tower that keeps the cubes from skittering away. And it's actually a larger piece than the frustratingly tiny gates that we have mentioned a couple of times Mm -hmm. now. The sound of Akeshi hitting the floor in this game is frankly terror-inducing because of the limited number of pieces and, and the fact that the counts and things matter. Yes. Yeah, everything is, is actually limited by the number of components. And the same problem is every time we pull out the gates, I'm always worried one's going to be missing. Like, I'm always the, the last pull to fill the last market. I'm always like, is there enough gates? Is there enough gates? Good, there were eight. Okay. We still have all the gates. Thank gosh. Overall, I really love this game. Um, I would go so far to say I'm a bit of a Feld fanboy and Marrakesh scratches all of my Feld itches. Uh, to me, this is one of his best games to date. And it's wonderfully varied point salad. And I feel like I'm still discovering this game even after multiple plays. Every game is played differently and it feels like I'm only scratching the surface. I'm learning how to play the game good. So on the other hand, while I can appreciate the game, I don't mind playing it at all. It's a sort of brain burn that I'm not actively seeking out in games. I see the appeal. I've had fun playing it several times now, but I don't completely share in that feeling, and I don't feel the pull to play it at the, at the sort of level that Mo and D do. Yeah, because, well, speaking of Deanna, while I'm a big Feld fan, uh, Bellhop behind the scenes mystic Deanna is even more so. Her favorite game of all time was Trajan. And I say was because, as far as we can tell, it's been replaced by Marrakesh. So she's still really pushing to have a game night where we play one after each other just to see if perhaps the the, the Trajan may still win out. So far, she thinks this may be the best Feld has to offer. Now, she loves heavy, thinky games with lots of options and decision points, and Marrakesh delivers on that count without getting too heavy, right? This doesn't get to the point where some heavy Euro games get where it feels like work. 
and you're totally exhausted by the end when you're done playing. It doesn't quite get that far. Now, for me, if I tried to take it to the level that D is playing at, it would feel like work and probably burn me out. Now, I actually feel pretty good about my showing. Even coming in last both times, the real difference in that final scoring displays clearly the extra work that D puts into understanding the interactions of the various aspects, maximizing scoring paths, and finding her... Uh, proper path and matching up the right tiles to buy from the markets to the way she is playing that game. It's, it's remarkable to watch and her show, her score definitely shows that effort she's put into it. So if you're a fan of Stefan Feld's point salad style games, stuff on the heavier side, like Amerigo and Trajan, you need to do yourself a favor and find a way to try Marrakesh. If you're half the Feld fan that my wife and I are, you can probably skip trying it and just go pick up a copy. Just be aware how much space the classic and deluxe editions take up and purchase appropriately. You may be better off with the essential edition. Indeed, I would say that for most people, the essential is probably enough. But for the real fan that has the space, the big box and the deluxe versions are a delight. Now, I'm pretty sure you knew this when we said Feld at the start of this review. But light game fans, party game fans, beer and pretzel gamers, family night gamers will probably want to avoid this one. Well, it's not the heaviest game out there. There is definitely stuff that's more brain burning. And you're not going to want to break out Excel on your final turn to plan out everything else. There, This is a meaty mechanics mashup that's probably not going to appeal to lighter audiences. That said, if you are the light gamer in your group, much like I am, if you're not worried about winning, you can still actually have a great experience playing this game. Just know that the real Feld fans will trounce you in the final score. But if that's okay, just playing through the game is an interesting, fun experience. Now, Marrakesh is the first game we've actually tried in Queen Games New City series, and I am looking forward to more. I've got Hamburg on our pile of uh, shame and obligation, and I am really looking forward to checking that one as out, as well as other games in the series. If they're even half as good as Marrakesh, we're in for a treat. Now, are you a Feld fan or Feld fanatic like Bo and D? What's your favorite Stefan Feld game? Is it from the new City series? What Feld game should we try and get our hands on next? Let us know in the comments down below. Join us as we go digital and share our thoughts on the new Point Salad app from MipMap, who we have to thank for giving us a couple of keys so we could check it out. So the new Point Salad app is available on iOS, Android, and Steam, and features cross-platform play between all of these. Price is under 10 bucks, and the game plays pretty much exactly the same as the physical version. This app version of Point Salad includes local play versus up to six players, either pass and play or with other people present, or against some pretty strong AI opponents. Online play also goes up to six players with the ability to create and host your own rooms privately or publicly, and a good lobby system for joining games. Now, one thing you get with the app that you don't with the physical game is some stat tracking like games played, number of wins, highest score, etc. Now, the one thing that is missing, though, is any way to communicate with the other players at all. Yeah, the high, playing Point Salad on the app is identical to playing in person, and it includes a tutorial for those that don't already know the game. Now, as a quick refresher for anyone who doesn't know Point Salad, there are three stacks of vegetable cards with the plate or point side face up. Two cards are revealed from each stack to form a market. Each turn, players draft either one point card or two veggies. When the deck runs out, everyone adds up the value of their point cards based on the veggies they collected. For a more in-depth look at how Point Salad plays, be sure to check out our Point Salad review. Everything we said there still applies here. 
though this app i thought this app was uh extremely well done like it it looks like point salad it feels like point salad and most importantly it plays exactly like point salad i think visually it's nice that they're really able to focus on the theme of the game and hide the card play aspect in a wonderful and engaging way where you're clicking on plates and vegetables not cards now my biggest complaint with this is an interesting one and i think it might be personal and that's the fact the app tracks everyone's score and shows you a running total. Well, I know that people's scores are open. And when you're playing the physical game, like it's all there in front of you. But you have to put forth the effort to figure it out. You need to look around at everyone's cards. You need to do the math in your head. And having it right there in front of you kind of ruins it for me. Because I've always found that getting away with something in Point Salad is part of the game. Like scoring that thing they missed that you had a full set of veggies or not noticing that, you know, they, they had the most, but you just drafted one more. I actually like that aspect of Point Salad. To me, that's part of the game. Well, the app takes that away. That removes that aspect of the game. The app even goes so far that you can try a bunch of different things on your turn. And until you hit accept, you can just keep playing around to be able to maximize your points every round, which to me just kind of feels a bit like cheating. For me, I appreciate the running total as it makes the game even more casual and relaxing for me, which is honestly what I want from this particular game. My complaint, which isn't really specific to this game, is the music. Now, maybe this is my old man yells at cloud moment, but does anyone want loud music for their casual games like this? Aren't we all already listening to podcasts, audiobooks, or Spotify already? See, I can't even comment on this one because I don't tend to put the volume up. I, I own it on my phone. So I have the the I, uh, the Android version where Sean decided to get the Steam version so we could try seeing how they compare to each other. And I don't think I've ever put the volume up on that game. So I can't actually comment on the music. Now, I do want to call out a glitch. So again, I have the, the Android version of the game. And right now it's still happening. I could actually show it to you on my phone right now for those of you here live. I have a game versus Sean that just never ended. We played the full game, we completed the game, then you get this screen where it shows who won. And it's kind of in a pyramid if you're playing with more players. Well, you have my score over Sean's game because I've won. And normally it, there's a button there, and I, I forget what it says, but like end game or something. Well, there's no button. It just stuck there on the windscreen. And I, it's still there. As of this morning, when we were working on the show notes, I grabbed it because I wanted to verify how many how high the player count was. And I could still resume that game. And I, and I guess I have a memento showing I beat Sean and Point Salad for the rest of my life. Like, I get it. Apps, it's new. It's a brand new app just released. Apps have glitches. I, I, I'm i just shocked that it's still there. Like, I, I still have that one open game. I don't know. Maybe I have to uninstall the app and reinstall it for it to, to be gone. Now, on my end, playing through Steam, I haven't found any glitches. Though a nice quality of life tweak that I would like to see is the ability to turn off that end turn button that Mo was saying allows cheating. Uh, yeah. It, it's for for players who are more confident and willing to take a risk because I have personally never changed my mind yet. Then the button is just an extra step that I have to remember every single time. No, I agree. That would be a useful function. Heck, and I almost want to turn it off so the players can't do the try. I think once I took back a turn, I'm like, wait, if I flip this plate, is that actually better than if I draft this? And I think I tried it just to see. And I'm like, yeah, that works. Overall, it's a great app. Uh, the base game is already very portable. This is more so. It, sure, the base game I can fit into one of those photo boxes, but it's still bigger than my phone. Also removes all the shuffling. And honestly, one of the things I do like about this is it removes the worry about damaging cards. Because this is a game I like to play at pubs and coffee shops, specifically uh, breweries and craft beer places 
where we have beverages on the table. So I got to say, it's kind of nice that not have the, the paper version because we bring out the physical copy all the time. Though for me, this is never going to replace the physical copy. And, and my wife agrees. Though it does win out for letting me play with Sean or other players remotely. Yeah, I think remote play is the real win for this, especially if you love the game but can't find enough people to play with. That online mm. cross-play ability opens you up to a world of players to enjoy the game with. So if you dig Point Salad, this is worth picking up. It's a really solid version of a great game. It's also, honestly, a cheap way to try before you buy. So you could grab the app, try it out, and if you enjoy it, then go seek out a physical copy of the game. Now, for me, it doesn't replace the physical game, but it is something I now own in addition to it. And that means I now have Point Salad with me everywhere I go, which is pretty cool. Well, that's it for our look at the Point Salad app, an app both of us recommend you check out at some point, as it does a fantastic job of recreating a game we both really dig. Now, some board game apps are better than others. This one really nails the feel of the original. What's a board game app you enjoy? Even better, is there an app out there that actually does a better job of presenting a game than the physical version? We would love to hear about it. Share your thoughts by leaving a comment or better yet, joining our Discord at discord.tabletopbellhop.com. It's time to draw some terrain in our review of Cartographer Heroes from Thunderworks Games, who we have to thank for providing us with a review copy of this flippin' right. Cartographer Heroes was designed by Jordi Adden and John Brieger. Features artwork from Dave Baker and Lucas Ribirio. It's published in 2021. Now, this is the follow-up to the popular flip-and-write game Cartographers, a role-player's tale, and is part of the same setting as the game role-player and many of the other Thunderworks games. This new version of Cartographers is compatible with the original version and all previously released expansions. This flip-and-write game can be played from 1 to 100 players, or probably more, as we've seen the game live-streamed before with tons of people playing along. In person, though, you probably want to stick to 3 or 4. While the box says this game plays in 30 to 40 minutes, our games tend to last over an hour, but not by a lot. The Cartographer's Heroes has each player playing a royal cartographer in a fantasy land heading out to the uncharted western lands. You start with a nearly blank map with the only feature being some mountains. Exploration happens by drawing cards which will show one or more terrain types and one or two shapes. Each cartographer will draw one of these features and shapes onto their map. Eventually, the seasons will change and everyone will score their maps based on a randomly determined scoring cards, as well as how much gold they've collected. At the end of four seasons, the cartographer with the most points wins. For those that know the original game, Cartographer's Heroes features a new two-sided map sheet and all new cards, including a new type of card, Heroes, which can damage monsters and protect squares on your map. Check out my Cartographer Heroes unboxing video on YouTube for a look at what you get in the box, including a nice thick pad of two-sided map sheets, some pre-sharpened pencils, and well, a bunch of cards, along with the rulebook. Component quality here is good, and neither of us has any complaints. You do <laughs> shuffle the terrain deck quite often, even during one play, so we can see people wanting to sleeve at least those cards. Now, you start off a game of Cartographers by separating you know, all the cards into different decks, generally by their backs. The season cards are stacked spring to winter. One scoring card is drawn of each type and placed where everyone can see it. A to D cards are placed above these, and each player grabs a sheet and a pencil. Either side of the map sheet can be used, but everyone has to use the same sheet. Well, one side just features mountains. The other side also has some impassable chasms. 
Note there are also ruin icons on both sides of the map. Those aren't used in this version of Cartographers. The train deck is built by adding one monster and one hero and giving it a very thorough shuffle. The game starts in spring with the top card of this deck being flipped over. Then each player will draw one of the terrain types and one of the shapes on the card onto their map sheet. There are a variety of terrain, ter terrain types. Forest, village, farm, water, monster, and hero. Most cards offer a choice of what terrain type to draw, usually of two, and one or more patterns you can draw that in. Patterns can be rotated in any direction, but not flipped. Now drawing for the most part simple. Draw the matching pattern on your map, filling empty squares with the terrain on the card. If somehow it won't fit, you do get to draw a single square of any terrain type anywhere on your map. Now, some cards will give you gold if you choose a smaller pattern to draw. This is tracked at the bottom of your map. Monsters are an exception. When a monster is drawn, you pass the map to one of your opponents who will draw the monster pattern on your map. Heroes are also special, as when you draw them, they show certain squares they protect. No monsters may be drawn there, and if there's already a monster terrain there, they defeat it, and it is crossed off. You continue to flip up cards until the numbers on the top of the reveal card meets or exceeds the number on the current season card. When this happens, the round ends and everyone scores points. Each season, two of the four scoring cards are active, and all players will get points based on their requirements. These are really all over the place and include things like having a group of four village squares together, Having water next to at least two farms, having full rows or columns on your sheets, etc. In addition to train types, players also get points for their current gold and lose points for every empty square next to a monster. At the end of four seasons, the player with the most points wins. There's a bit more to it, but all of that comes through on the cards themselves. For example, if you surround the dragon, you get a reward of three gold. Zombies multiply every round. This is very much an exception-based card games where the cards can break or change the core rules. Now, I've been hearing good things about Cartographers for quite some time, and it's been on my list to check out for a while now. So I'm happy Thunderworks hooked this up, and I got to check it out. This is a very solid game. Now, for whatever reason, I tend to think of Flip, Roll, X, and Rights as lighter games. I don't know why. Like, like just quicker party-style games you can hammer through quickly. And despite playing some thinkier ones like Dice Kingdoms of Valeria... I, I still have that stuck in my head. So I wasn't expecting Cartographer Heroes to have the depth it does. There are some really hard decisions in this game, and the game really rewards thinking ahead and strategic play. Well, one thing it also rewards is game knowledge. Knowing yeah. what possible patterns exist can help you draw things a bit more intelligently. Now, while I wouldn't go so far as to say it rewards in-depth knowledge, just a vague idea of what sorts of shapes you're going to be expected to draw can help. I would mm. recommend letting any new player at least shuffle through the deck for a quick peek if they are trying to be competitive with those people who have played the game before. Now, while the depth here surprised me, my first game, I was kind of shocked. I love it. I, I think it's fantastic. Cartographer Heroes gives me the feel of a solid empire-building Euro game all through flipping cards and drawing things on a map. I also found it gives me a solid sense of building something. And I love checking out my finished map and comparing it with the other players at the end of the game. Well, the first game you play of it will likely be a bit overwhelming, trying to learn and accommodate all the things. So I don't think you should expect that empire building feel until you're a little more comfort familiar and comfortable with the game. Now, the biggest downfall to this game is the writing, the drawing, whichever you want to call it. There are a lot of symbols in this game. Some are easier to draw than others. My first play, I was reminded of a different game we've reviewed called Doodle Dungeon, 
That's another flip and write, which also had a lot of symbols, but it actually gave you a little plastic template, a little stencil to use to draw those symbols. And I think that could have helped here. Now, to be fair, players could just simplify things by picking an appropriate letter or something really simple like an X, a triangle, a square, and a circle. As in general, you only really need to know what's on your own map. I've seen it also strongly suggested pretty much everywhere that a better solution is just get different colored pencils for each terrain type in the game and then block out areas of color instead of actually drawing. Now, we haven't taken that step yet, but it, I think it's going to be worth doing. And it's something I just need to sit down with my kids and say, hey, do you have some extra colored pencils I can borrow? Now, just writing a letter in it might be as solid a choice as anything, but what letters those letters might be isn't immediately obvious as you quickly get F for both forest or farm, for instance. Yeah, as long as it's clear to all the players, like it only actually matters when you pass for the monsters and you're like, what's the C? Oh, okay. That's for the water. Sure. Okay, whatever. <laughs> right? I don't think it'd be that bad. Now, jumping back to that, actually, that aspect of, of passing your thing, I, I actually really like this because one of the things I worried about with this game is that it would be multiplayer solitaire. Many flip and write, roll and write, bingo style games are multiplayer solitaire. There's no player interaction. I love the fact that there is some in this game with those monsters. The fact that that you pass your sheet to someone else who's going to mess with you is, is actually a big draw of this game. And I also like the fact that, that if the monsters show up as a random thing, they may not come into play. You only add one monster each season. But if a monster doesn't come up during a season, it stays in the deck. So the later you go without monsters, more chance you have them. And we've had games where one monster showed up the entire four rounds. And we've had another game where Winter had three of them show up in a row, which really messed with everyone's endgame. Now, this is another interesting aspect of that foreknowledge I was mentioning earlier. As if the monsters haven't shown up yet, you can try and limit where they might be able to go and the damage they can do if you know how they might be laid out and what's pattern they are drawn in. Now, one thing you're not going to find in Cartographer's Heroes is a story in any real way and really any theme, because the theme here could be absolutely anything. Um, well, the scoring cards may be called things like the Gnomish Village, and when you're drawing monsters, you're drawing dragons. It all just boils down to drawing abstract shapes on a grid. Well, sure. You could write a story based on the development of your lands and the heroes and the monsters. You could do that about almost any game you play, and there's no more <laughs> incentive for you to do that for this game than there is for Monopoly. So I gotta say, possibly taking your end map and doing something with it? Could be a really fun experience for an RPG group, especially if you combine it with um, um, micro. What's it called? Oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the RPG that's about making your setting background microscope or uh, there's a follow up to that one. I think it'd be interesting. And honestly, if you've done that, if you're listening to this review and you've taken a cartographer's map and used it in an RPG, I would love to hear about it. Overall, I went in expecting to like Cartographer's Heroes. I, everything I'd heard about the game sounded like it was up my alley. But it ended up liking it more than I actually expected. I found the game to be much more brain burning with much more difficult decision points than I was expecting. And that was a good thing for me. This is also why my wife, Deanna, who's into heavier games, really loved it. Her expectations were lower than mine going in. And in the end, I think she actually enjoys it more than I do. And I do dig it. I'm really starting to enjoy these games more, despite being pretty mad about the entire genre early on. Uh, we are seeing a lot of different takes on it and some unique twists. Now, while I don't think this one stands out dramatically on its own from other flippin' rights, it does, however, benefit from having the large amount of expansion oh, yeah. material already available from the original game. 
So if you like thinky games with hard decisions that reward long-term planning, where something you did in turn one could come back to haunt you later in the game, then Cartographer Heroes will probably be a good fit for you, especially if you don't mind some randomness and other people potentially messing with those plans. While I haven't tried it, and we aren't usually solo game players in general, I can see the small footprint of this one being great for solo play, uh, a regular market for this sort of game. My wife and I also found Cartographers to be a great coffee shop or bar game due to its small footprint. There aren't many games that are this small that pack this much punch. It really does not take up a lot of a footprint. If you like some brain burn with your cold brew, Cartographer Heroes is a great choice. Just be aware that not only is there randomness, but also the fact that someone else has an impact on your sheet through monsters. And that someone might be more or less vindictive. This could impact your enjoyment of the game, though since someone else is doing the same thing to their sheets, you hope they won't be too cruel with their choices. Now, if what you want from a whatever and right is a fast, furious fun filled with comparing notes and laughter and flipping cards and doing a thing, you're not going to find that. Well, flipping over a card and drawing the matching shape on a map grid is pretty simple mechanic as far as mechanics go. It's going to take some thinking to be able to score well in Cartographer Heroes. Well, thanks for joining us for our review of Cartographer's Heroes from Thunderworks Games. A fantasy flip and write with some serious meat to it. What's your favorite roll, flip, whatever and write game? Let us know about it in the comments below. Fire off an email to mo at tabletopbellhop.com or hit us up on social media. All right, that's three reviews in a row uh, we've recorded tonight. And you know what? I need more coffee. You can help keep us caffeinated and motivated at coffee. That's ko-fi.com slash tabletop bellhop. And now in the bellhops tabletop, we look back at the games we played since the last episode. And it's going to be a lot. Oh, I should cut that. Out. It's not that bad this week. It's not not compared to last week's. But, you know, February 2024 so far being so good. Uh, because with Gamma Expo prep in full swing, we didn't get in nearly as many games the last few weeks. And Sean was out of town for most of the time. So uh, we did get in one game night with Sean when he got back from his work trip. And we did play some games on my youngest daughter's birthday. So there are some games to talk about. Yeah, it was completely bad. And I needed some R&R after uh, that, <laughs> that work trip. So it was nice to get some gaming in. So up first was a game night. Sean came over. We were uh, hoping to play five players. One of my daughters decided to bow out. So we we sat down and played a couple rounds of holotype. Uh, first off, it was just uh, Sean, Deanna, and I, because my, my oldest was busy doing homework. Once she finished her homework, she joined in. So then it was Sean, Deanna, Gwen, and I. Uh, it was the first play for Sean and Gwen. Well, first and second play for Sean, because we played twice. Now, I talked quite a bit about holotype. I can't remember if it was last week or the week before. But this was your first time playing it. So I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, this one was really interesting. Um, wasn't sure what to expect. Again, this is uh, the only game that this publisher makes, which is, mm-hmm. is not a red flag, but a, an interesting uh, thing. And there are uh, expansions for it as well. I would say it definitely feels a little bit like, uh, in some ways, like a Scholar's Choice uh, educational market game. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there is some real strategy to it. Uh, there is, unfortunately, a lot of randomness to it in, to some degree, uh, I know you got bit by the randomness bug uh, oh, yeah. on our second time through, uh, that even though you did finally catch up closer to the end, uh, you know, there's that. Again, this, it also does benefit from a little bit of knowledge, knowing, you know, what works and what doesn't. Uh, although I was surprised, uh, I had, I had come up with some ideas about what to do on my first playthrough and I didn't do them on the second time through. I went a different way and still almost mm-hmm. won. 
So it's not, you know, it's not vital that you have to do this in order to win sort of thing. Yeah. But there's definitely some benefits to to making sure you uh, distribute your scoring opportunities as widely as possible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a bit of a point salad that way. So yeah, spread your things out. We are we are so far really enjoying this one. We'll probably have a review ready soon. Um, surprisingly quick and easy to learn is is what kind of stuck out about that one for me. Yeah, I mean they're really I, I don't even really remember you teaching it. It it just kind of plays. <laughs> it's, it's really it's just really pretty straightforward. Played. Uh, next up, it was Genevieve's birthday. That is my youngest daughter. And we let her pick anything she wanted to play. So she decided to go mostly with party games, despite mom really pushing for another round of holotype um, and started off with a five player game of the chameleon, which I'm still having really mixed thoughts on. The problem is the first play for anyone playing this game or, or first couple rounds are just fragile and they keep breaking like like. The first three-player game we played on Jen's birthday, some, the first three times we played on Jen's birthday, someone round, ruined those three rounds. Now, this tended to happen during the voting phase. There's there's this point where everyone said their words. Now everyone's like deciding who to vote is the chameleon. And people kept saying things they shouldn't, right? Like, like they're like, so you would have people talking about, they're like, well, I knew you had the off had to have office because when you said desk after I said paperwork, I knew that had to be the word. Well, at this point, we hadn't pointed out who the chameleon was yet. So like, oh, you just ruined it. Right. And then and obviously the chameleon is going to win because now even if we get the vote right, they know the answer's office. Or we had it where like the chameleon was revealed. And before they get to say what they think the word is, someone's already yelled out what it is. Right. Like it just for a light party game. It's surprisingly fragile. So interestingly, there is a new version of this, which is the Chameleon uh, Picture Edition, yep. uh, which just came out last year and does seem uh, to be higher rated. And I wonder if they fixed some of those problems. Uh, they talk Maybe. about uh, all the complicated code cards and dice have been replaced with exciting secret reveal envelopes. Um, yeah, maybe. So I, it's uh, the whole thing. I don't know. I just, I don't think I've ever experienced a quick to play party game, right? Like the marketing here is, you know, the exploding kittens crowd that has such a learning curve. Like, like people just don't get it at first. Right. Like eventually we got there, right? Like once we got there and once everyone's on the same page and we clearly explain, you know, don't talk about things, don't give out hints until we finish the whole round. Then we can all talk about why'd you say this? Why you didn't do this? It, it, I, we did end up enjoying it. Now here's an interesting twist though. Kind of looking at the other side of things. When my oldest daughter is now hosting a board game night after school once a week at Walkerville. And one of the games she brought was the chameleon. And while a couple kids showed up that she didn't know, new kids, and were like, oh my God, you have the chameleon. We love it. Let's play. So she noted that playing with that group was completely different and was super shocked by how vague everyone's clues were and that there was no spoiling of anything. And it was actually really hard to vote for who was the chameleon. So it just seems like you just have to get over a hump, a learning curve to be able to enjoy this game. Well, and I think there's, there's a certain, it, it is a certain type of game. Um, and I, we noticed that as well as we were learning, uh, psychobabble, uh, yeah. whereas, you know, people tended to become more vague the more you played that game. Uh, there was, there was, you know, it, it was trying to, to leave more confusion in your wake as a matter of a fact. Yeah. And, and, and I think this game is in, in many ways the same way. And, and, you know, if, if people haven't played that type of game a lot, it is a, a concept you need to wrap your head around. 
I'm going to jump back to holotype because we have a slight lag based on our chat. And Deanna called out something that I did find interesting because this didn't happen in our, our first place is now that we got the game down. What was interesting is the way players would hold off on publishing papers because you're worried that other people will use your research, which I, as Deanna pointed out is a rather good thematic tie in to that particular game. Yeah. That's an interesting aspect. And I almost wonder, it almost feels like they haven't, balanced the research economy properly um because it seems like that one aspect and the fact that you only need to pay five research in order to use anybody's uh research and and um to gain your points is really kind of weird because while Mm. the first time you do it it's only five points but the next time it's you know 12 points and then it's like you know 35 points if you do it five times it really adds up quickly and it, you know, only using five points because the, the problem is you're almost never able to use your own research in, for free. Right. It's because it's, by the time you get the requirement, someone else is going to claim it. Yeah, exactly. Now, what I wish there was, and I, I think I don't know if it would fix it, is I want a discount for having some of the info myself. Like it's five minus one for every dino of the right type you have, or you pay five per person you have to cite. Or whatever, two per card you have to cite. If you have some, it's left. I think I'd rather see that. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's just, it's the economy seems broken for the benefit you get uh, over multiple uses. You know, if it was just five for every time that you got, that's one thing, but it's not. It escalates a lot. To be fair, I think we're meeting with Brexwork. So it might be something I should bring up with the designer because. I just wonder if they've tried different things because Deanna wonders if, if they play tested it different ways. And there's a reason they went with five that we don't understand. Could be. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Next up back to Jen's birthday is a round of dubious. This is the, the AEG social deduction game. It's more deduction than social uh, semi role playing game that honestly went better. I think than our first game, at least as well. Um, D and I talked about this one last week quite a bit. Uh, dubious, honestly, at this point is one of the best deduction games I played, though it's longer and more involved than most, which means it's not for everyone. And that actually might be what I like about it is the fact it's not like a quick rapid fire party game. There is a lot of going around the table and it's not as much it's talking and, and, and waiting to, and writing and making notes and, and you're doing the clue thing, you know, like, like people are making um logic diagrams you know on the rough notes and and you know no because you said this it's uh, you're not doing that and uh, there's a lot of things going on but i gotta say like the added depth here the fact you basically get this giant character sheet to work with is just so much so worth it yeah this is an interesting one and i I do look forward to playing with it playing it at some point uh because i don't it, it seems to me like it doesn't describe itself well. Like there's, there's yeah. a lot more to the game than you're able to get through from just hearing you talk about it. Um, oh, I agree. And, and even looking at the pictures, it, it's, I think I've got an idea, but until I sit down and play it, I feel like it, it's, it's hard to really kind of grasp because it's, it's not a difficult game. It's the weight's not high, but there is no. a lot going on. And uh, the interaction between players is really interesting. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, this is one that I like. I didn't expect the amount of writing <laughs> is required when I first sat down. Like even when I read the rules, I'm like, oh, yeah, this doesn't seem that bad. But like you write down your own answers to all the questions before you say them aloud to the players, right? And it just there, there, there's a lot more involved. It's it's way more of a deduction game. Like, like there's puzzling. It's 
It's figuring out what roles you have, what roles you think other people are. And uh, the most amusing part is listening to players who speak out loud. Now, I don't know if this would happen with every group, but at least playing with my family, hearing Gwen going, no, that's not possible. You can't both be number seven, you know, which is it's just funny to hear. Now, this time we played with Victorian London roles and secrets. And honestly, it was just as fun as the fantasy version. I'm still not sure how much fun it'll be being, you know, a, a taxi driver who cheats on his wife versus uh, being a, whatever, a chemist who does seances at night, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll try the modern roles and, and things at some point. Uh, scores were much closer. Um, this is again not at the point where it was fragile like the chameleon, but there is a learning curve. Um, definitely people were getting better in our second play at hinting at their roles and their secrets without totally giving them away. Um, I ended up trying something totally new that I didn't consider the first time that actually worked because I my secret would have been too easy to give away and to not give the secret away. Instead, I started being very clear what the other secrets I was not which actually seemed to work pretty well. So I ended up winning the game. So that did seem to help. So you're playing dubious and you're like, well, I don't know how to hint at that. The fact that I hunt werewolves without mentioning I carry silver with me at all time. Maybe it's better to eliminate some of the other ones. Yeah. And this is one where I, I assume, you know, what all the possible rules are. Yes. Yeah. You so. actually have like a DM screen that shows them in front of you. Right. So it's yeah, not you like have a list. You, you can't you can't claim to be holding silver because you're the butler who needs to be ready for a, a magical dinner party. Uh, yes. <laughs> See, I, I yeah. Well, you say you have to try it. it. It's not at all what I expected. I got I got to say, like, I, it's impressive. It, it is a neat game. It is. And I, you know, me in social deduction games, I was like, OK, sure. We'll <laughs> check this out. Maybe it'll be fun. And I'm like, no, this is neat. There's, a, there's RPG elements. There's a lot of there is improv required. Um. There is like thinking on the spot. That part, I know some people are, it's going to turn them off right away. Finally, um, what I'm going to call now my biggest surprise of 2024. And I, I, I'm curious to see if this sticks when we do our, you know, January wrap up of 2024, if this is still my biggest surprise. But, uh, Kiss the Goblin from Skybound Entertainment was actually really fun. Like laugh out loud. Um, my side hurt. Um, Jen almost fell out of her chair laughing kind of fun. Um, this is now up there. I always call out Marvel heroic role-playing as the perfect example of not being able to judge a book by its cover. Even if you've read the rule book, that game sounded terrible until I played it at the table. And now I have a board game example because kiss the goblin. When I first read the rule book, I was like, what is this to the fact that like Sean's been over and I'm like, well, we could play kiss the goblin. We should have because man, this, it was good. And, and, and what won us over is how well worded the questions were. And it reminded me of the first time I played for the queen where I was like, you know what makes this game work? Whoever the hell made these questions is brilliant. I, I suspect though, that like for the queen, it will take the right people. Um, there yeah. are certain people who don't enjoy that kind of out loud, you know, it's not role play, but it is role play uh, sort of, sort of games uh, like for the queen. Uh, where the game can fall flat for them. Uh, I think we're just lucky that we happen to, you know, know a whole bunch of people and have family members who get into that and can really yeah. enjoy role-playing uh, through a game. So this isn't that you haven't played it yet. So it's not at all like for the queen because you answer one question. Like you're a character for three sentences. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no think about your character. It's, it's lived. Okay. So, so what this is, is a D and D inspired alignment guessing game. Active player shuffles their hand of cards, which is the three 
the, the two accesses of alignments, right? Uh, good, evil, neutral, and lawful, neutral, chaotic. You shuffle those so that you have one of each. Then you draw a card from a deck. You read the question out loud. Then answer that question in a way that represents that alignment. And that's it. You're done. Now, everyone else gets to guess. They then they have the exact same set of cards. They put two cards down on the table, one from each access. You reveal them. See if there's matches. If anyone guesses your alignment correct, you get a point. Everyone that got it right gets a point. That's it. First player to 10 points wins. So you're not getting into a role. And the other thing is because the, despite the fact this is D&D inspired, these are not all fantasy questions. Yes, there is. Um, there was one about kissing a goblin. But then there was also, oh, I'm trying to think of some of the modern ones. There were also modern ones. Um, some of the stuff was like, we will troll them online. You know, someone, uh, someone's answer. My daughter, Gwen, seems to think that trolling your friends all online can be a good online thing to do. So we had a conversation about morality at the table. Uh, interesting. I mentioned you're saying I was expecting more, uh, art more interesting art for kiss the goblin. Yeah, there's none. They're there's not, zero yeah, it's, it's art text. for that game. What type of toppings does a chaotic evil person like on their pizza? Yes. Well, that was the thing that, that, that is the one problem is you need to know the alignments, but honestly, kids these days are going to know it from memes, right? Everyone's seen the, the three by three grid of alignments for everything in the dang world who had the hardest time with it was actually my mother-in-law, Brenda, who, yes, well, she ran some D and D for Deanna back when she was a kid has no real knowledge of it. Now the game does give you the grid like it, and, and their description of it, which I admit is a little different than the way I think of it. So you are going to get each group's bias on what the different alliance uh, alignments mean. But honestly, you know, after the third or fourth time around the table, uh, Deanna or uh, Brenda had it figured out. Like she had it. Uh, we, we just had a little talk going on in the chat room about uh, holotype and uh, Eggman Jr. mentions that he, they have, they use a house rule uh, where if you publish the the last dinosaur needed to enable the shared objectives, you can claim it that turn if you have the resources to do th so. Oh, that's so it doesn't allow the the sniping. Although, but I'm concerned that would allow a different kind of sniping where you're essentially sniping yourself by sandbagging, and and you know everyone's just sort of hoarding up the resources and and dinosaurs until you have to publish. You know, someone has to publish, yeah, and then the next person snipes them because they have the one to to finish that. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's better or worse. Yeah. I, I will admit, like, it, it doesn't feel good when someone steals your thing. But again, I almost feel like that's a thematic tie-in, and it's just you have to be aware of it. Deanna, I mentioned earlier in the chat, she loves that aspect of the game where you're constantly checking everything and counting. And it's another one where it's that point salad thing we talked about with the app. If that was on an app, you'd have all that info in front of you. But, like, I published a paper she missed because she miscounted a type of dinosaur. Well, and there were times. I mean, is that a feature or a problem? And there were times where we thought there were, you know, were decounted three times and thought the number was wrong. Uh, yes. It's it's really difficult, especially because there is no fixed way to store your dinosaurs or to display your dinosaurs. So yours and mine and D's and Gwen's were all being stored differently. Yeah. Uh, which which is, is tricky in itself. Although I have to say, again, I didn't worry too much about those global resources the second time. And right. I still came in second because I, I I published more papers than like anyone else. Yes. Um, so there's definitely other ways to to win. Um, I'm just not sure, you know. Overall, without more plays, I just don't know, uh, you know, how how bad that uh, that sniping and things is. So what we got to do next time is wait longer for the chat to respond before we move to the next game. <laughs> because we keep jumping back to Hollow. All right, getting back to Kiss the Goblin. Um. 
All I got to say is when I read it, it sounded too simple. Like, I'm like, this isn't going to be fun. This isn't going to be a game. But it's the fact it's that simple that it works. And that's why it's fun. It's rapid fire and people get silly. People argue over why things were said. And it does everything that honestly a good party game should do. Because when I read the rules, I immediately wanted to house rule them. If, if I was Roger Dodger, uh, uh, you know, I, I would have introduced this game with my own variant the first time at play if we didn't have to re- review it. I still think you could mash this up with Dubious in a way to get a better game. Like what I want to do is I want a game where everyone is assigned an alignment, possibly randomly. Everyone answers the same question. And then you go around and try to figure out what alignment everyone is, right? More of a deduction game. The thing is, that would make it more of a gamer's game. And honestly, it may not be as much fun. Like, honestly, I think that quick, light party game, rapid fire, laugh about what's happening is what makes this work. So I think Skybound's got a hit here. And I, again, I'm shocked. Like, I read this and went, this isn't going to be fun. And we played it and, like, had a fantastic time. Yeah, it's interesting. It doesn't seem to have a lot of buzz around it. Uh, it doesn't got. It doesn't have a lot of reviews yet. So uh, hopefully we can get the get the word out to more people and find out, you know, get those people who like the party games. And I think we have we should have a number of viewers who like party games yeah. and listeners who like party games, because frankly, we talk about them a lot. So if you like party games, this isn't a bad show to listen to. All right. Next up uh, for what's coming next is, of course, Gamma Expo. Um, I expect to hear about all kinds of new games and play demos. And we've already got a couple game dates set up. So. Due to the timing when we come back, though, what I'm not sure is when we're going to give you a full Gamma Expo recap. We plan to do one. There will be a full episode. We're going to try to get Deanna on the show. And I think what we'll try to do is have Sean as well. So we have all three of us and Sean can kind of ask questions and then and ask us about the experience. So we may do this when we come back, but we're coming back on Monday. And that doesn't give us a lot of time to get everything ready for the show. So we're thinking of possibly taking a week off. We might do a March break AMA. Um, before we get to the gamma stuff. But again, I do say watch our social media. I'm, I'm going to try to to share things live a little more for this show, or at least, you know, not necessarily live, but like, you know, at lunch, put out a bunch of info on what I saw in the morning, maybe do some live tweets like we did for the Origins Awards. We'll see exactly how that plays out. Well, before we start locking things down, let's take a moment to thank a selection of our tabletop bellhop Patreon patrons. Danielle and Owen Thomas. Thank you. John P. Kelly. Thanks, Sean. Derek Hisson. Thanks, Derek. Thank you to the Misdirected Mark podcast. Donna showing up just in time to get called out. Thank you, Pax the Paladin. Well, that was the double bell. Means our shift's coming to an end and we're going to have to lock the lobby doors. Even when we're not here live, you can always find us at tabletopbellhop.com. All over the web is Tabletop Bellhop, one word, and on your podcatcher of choice as the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast. Now, if you enjoyed tonight's show and learned something new, you can say thanks by tipping your bellhop at patreon.com slash tabletop bellhop. Well, that's all for us tonight. We also appreciate your support by giving us a thumbs up, a like, leaving a comment, or better yet, tell your friends and fellow gamers about our show. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And And game game on. on. Find full reviews, show notes, and more at tabletopbellhop.com. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG and Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. 